You're listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Barry Petrucci. I'm Jess Davenport. And together we are the Irreverent Reverends. It Simply Isn't Done is a podcast both about the state of the church, um, because the church is not done and God is still working with us, and about some of the things we do around here, which we frequently hear are things that are simply not done. Correct. And we're glad you're here with us for the ride. It is the last week of our series I've been meaning to ask, and our focus question was... Where do we go from here? Where do we go from where here? Where do we? And um, the text was from the beginning of Ruth, the message version, which is fun to throw that paraphrase in there. It is pretty close to the other translations yeah. we have. And Barry preached. And if you have already heard the scripture and the message, you can check the notes and skip ahead to the reflection. The scripture today is from Ruth, verses 1 through 22 from the message. Once upon a time, it was back in the days when judges led Israel. There was a famine in the land. A man from Bethlehem in Judah left home to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, his sons were Melan and Kilian, all Ephraelites from Bethlehem in Judah. They all went to the country of Moab and settled there. Elimelech died and Naomi was left, she and her two sons. The sons took Moabite wives, the name of the first was Orpah, the second, Ruth. They lived there in Moab for the next 10 years. But then the two brothers, Melon and Kilian, died. Now the woman was left without either her young men or her husband. One day, she got herself together, she and her daughters-in-law, to leave the country of Moab and set out for home. She had heard that God had been pleased to visit his people and give them food. And so she started out from the place she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law with her, on the road back to the land of Judah. After a short while on the road, Naomi told her two daughters-in-law, Go back. Go home and live with your mothers. And may God treat you as graciously as you treated your deceased husbands and me. May God give each of you a new home and a new husband. She kissed them, and they cried openly. They said, no, we're going on with you to your people. But Naomi was firm. Go back, my dear daughters. Why would you come with me? Do you suppose I still have sons in my womb who can become your future husbands? Go back, dear daughters. On your way, please. I'm too old to get a husband. Why, even if I said there's still hope, and this very night got a man and had sons, can you imagine being satisfied to wait until they were grown? Would you wait that long to get married again? No, dear daughters, this is a bitter pill for me to swallow, more bitter for me than for you. God has dealt me a hard blow. Again they cried openly. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth embraced her and held on. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her home to live with her own people and gods. Go with her. But Ruth said, don't force me to leave you. Don't make me go home. Where you go, I go, 
and where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll die, and that's where I'll be buried. So help me God, not even death itself is going to come between us. When Naomi saw that Ruth had her heart set on going with her, she gave in. And so the two of them traveled on together to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was soon buzzing. Is this really our Naomi? And after all this time? But she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. The strong one has dealt me a bitter blow. I left here full of life, and God has brought me back with nothing but the clothes on my back. Why would you call me Naomi? God certainly doesn't. The strong one ruined me. And so Naomi was back, and Ruth, the foreigner with her, back from the country of Moab. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks to God. Amen. Stephen Schwartz writes musicals. You know this even if you don't know the name. He wrote Pippin. He wrote Wicked. He wrote the Disney film The Prince of Egypt and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Stephen Schwartz wrote Godspell and lots more. Plus he wrote Children of Eden, one that Schwartz considered his favorite in an interview some years ago. Children of Eden is based on the first chapters of the book of Genesis. The musical runs from the creation to the destruction of creation at the hand of God. While Noah and family and animals bob in the waters of the great flood. In the time on the ark, the family sings, 40 days and 40 nights come and gone, all the world is dead and drowned. Still the rain goes on, there are no beasts or people anymore. What is God waiting for? What is God waiting for? 40 days and 40 nights, black and bleak, and what rations we have, last, we have left will not last the week. Papa calls and calls to God. Why won't you speak? And the family says, where is the son he said he would restore? What is he waiting for? What is he waiting for? Father, what is he waiting for? They, as we, ask, where do we go from here? How do we get off this ark? When are the waters going to subside? We've been meaning to ask in these weeks of this little series. We've been meaning to ask, where are you from? Where does it hurt? What do you need? And now, where do we go from here? Ultimately, <clears throat> we've been talking about how to be fully present with one another, how to dare to ask in unobtrusive but clear ways. We've been talking about how to show we've been seriously considering the other, seriously considering each other. And we wrap it up today with where do we go from here? 
So Noah and clan are shut in against the rising waters, and at some level they are grateful, sort of grateful, but anxious for what is next, anxious for the strong one to dry the land and let them and the ark and the now three of everything in the ark get off. It is a love-hate relationship. All they knew has changed outside the ark, and all has changed within them. This is way, way familiar to us, right? Relationships miscommunicated in hurtful words that make us wonder about moving forward at all. And we mutter to ourselves, if not to another, where do we go from here? Terror and response in Ukraine and Israel and Palestine and in the tunnels of Hamas, in Maui, in Lewiston, finger-pointing and name-calling, seemingly unforgettable and unforgivable destruction of land, of property, of lives, youngest to the oldest, combatants and innocents, and even as the bombs still fall and the armaments continue to be distributed, the human still asks, where on God's earth and in God's name do we go from here? It's there. It's there in this Bible we hold sacred. It's there, this tension of life. It's there, the dynamics of death and hope, of dashed hopes and of renewed possibilities. It's there. Where do we go from here? The book of Ruth is a kind of iconic Bible story on the worst that life has to offer. Where are you from? Where does it hurt? What do you need? Are all over this simple story. And ultimately, it all points to the seemingly absurd possibilities of renewed hope and some direction for whatever might be next. It's all about going here to there. The book of Ruth begins like an epic film on a scene panning the landscape of crisis. There is a famine in the land of Judah that forces a family of four to leave their hometown of Bethlehem, a city whose name means, ironically, house of bread, and there is no bread. They hear rumors that there is food in the country of Moab, enemy territory. So Elimelech, don't you love that name? It, it just goes in my head every time as Elimelech, 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 in the jungle. Sorry. So Elimelech, Naomi's husband, makes the difficult decision to move his wife and two sons almost 50 miles away. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us. But in this territory, it was rough, and it was enemy territory. They go 50 miles to the other side of the Dead Sea. Moab and Israel were enemies. Some things don't change, right? 
So you can imagine how desperate they must have been to seek refuge in unknown and hostile places. Some things don't change, right? Somehow, though, the author of Ruth tells us they settled and made a home in this foreign land. Elimelech died, leaving behind Naomi and her two sons. They eventually marry women from Moab, Orpah and Ruth. And ten years later, though, we read that both of Naomi's sons have died. Suddenly, three women living alone in such a patriarchal society, this would have left them vulnerable and destitute. With a rush of hope, Naomi hears that the famine in Judah has finally come to an end, and she decides to head back to go home. She knows where to go from here. And there comes this moment when Naomi stops and looks at her daughter-in-laws who are following her. Why are you coming with me? You, should be, you would be foreigners in Bethlehem. You would have no rights. Why are you following me? Go back to your families in Moab and find some new husbands and get on with your lives. They embrace, they weep together. Orpah takes Naomi's advice to heart and returns to her family for reasons that seem obvious and yet are not articulated. She goes, Ruth says, no, no. She refuses to turn back. Her words to Naomi are infamous and they have come to be the very words of what the nature of love looks like. Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. I will be buried there alongside you. And then Ruth binds herself with an oath, calling upon God to curse her if she ever abandons or betrays Naomi. What can you say in the face of that kind of love, that kind of bond, that kind of dedication? Naomi takes her commitment to heart and stops insisting that Ruth return to her homeland. Now, this was a really risky move in the ancient Near East. At that time, a widow with no larger clan or tribe that she's associated with for protection is extra, extraordinarily vulnerable. And this is one of those cinematic kinds of moments, a classic turn of a hero's journey. The storyteller doesn't tell us why Ruth would put herself in this kind of position. In fact, we must keep breathing to get a glimpse into her motivation. The story, but not in our text, continues. We glimpse Ruth's motivation when we glimpse a wealthy landowner she meets when she arrives in Bethlehem. There's much more to the story, I know, but I want to invite us to zoom in on this scene. Ruth goes out to glean, right, to pick the leftovers from the fields. It was social law at the time that remnants of the harvest be left in the fields for the poor to harvest and survive on. Even the edges of the field left for the poor. She ends up in the fields of Boaz, and Boaz says to her, I, I've been told 
about you. I've been told all about you've done for, all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord reward you and give you refuge for the kindness you have shown. Boaz recognizes this story as familiar. See, he comes from a tradition where Abraham heads into the unknown, depends on the kindness of strangers, and strangers depend on his kindness. You've been there, right? Most of us have. Commonly called changes. Changes. Or if you're a David Bowie fan, changes. Leaving what we know, moving into what's next, it's all about changes. This is the story of every hero. I've heard about you. I know where you're from. I've heard of your hurt and what you need, and I want to hear now up close and personal. I want to hear and be a part of where you are going because I think, I think I am going too. These are saint stories where we hear and we move on the authenticity of another. While Orpah went back to the familiar, Ruth has another call, staying close to her beloved Naomi. She simply knew by some great intuition what were the moments you just knew in your own life that it was a point of hard decision, of change, and yet the decision was clear. It has been clear to me that my tenure at Chapel Hill has been wonderfully long. But it's been clear that there is another call to something else. Though that something else is not quite yet clear. I trust it's clear to the bishop. I know it is not retirement. And it is going to become clear, and I will know by June. <laughs> Sometimes where we go from here is, is clarity first of knowing the direction to someplace other than here, but not necessarily to where that is. Ruth has the other way in resolve, resilience, this stalwart trust that there is more elsewhere. You could rattle off these moments in your own lives, and on this day you can connect those decisions with the love, the guidance, the example of the saints in your own lives, those who were there for you. Those singer-songwriter Anne Reed called heroes who show you the way. Anne sang, what can I learn from you? that I must do the thing I think I cannot do, that you do what's right by your heart and your soul. It's the imperfections that make us whole. One life can tell the tale, but if you make the effort, you cannot fail. By your life, you tell me it can be done. By your life is the courage to carry on. Heroes appear like a friend to clear a path or light the flame. As time goes, you find you depend on your heroes to show you the way. Heroes, saints. The move to a space, a situation, a time from here is a heroic move. It builds on reflecting where you have been with people who know. 
John Denver sang it as, old friends know where you are because they know where you've been. Amen. They have dared sit with you in the hurt and in the need, being quiet and asking, where's the hurt? What do you need? And they rise with you with a hand and a hug to send you off to whatever is next in blessing and care. Whether in in scripture or history or poetry or fiction or in the stories of our lives, it is not always clear what motivates the human move to stand and face the compass, pick a needle point and say, there. I will go there. It's not always clear. I don't know, and yet I know it's true. We take where we are We take where we are from and move through the hurts and through the needs to set sights on something else. What's next for you? What is the work of love that is yours to do? And I wonder if maybe the question is not so much where do we go from here, but why do we go from here? What motivates us? It's about why we go. What is that thing that is within us that compels us to move, that compels us to action on behalf of the other, on behalf of the neighbor? We go because of loving kindness. We we go because loving kindness has said we go because we have vision for how we can partner with God in the long overdue restoration of all things broken. No small task, no small task, and so we'd better get going. We must get going. So it's not where, it is why. It's about tuning into our own sense of head and connecting ourselves to the head of God, which is un. Failing. We go from here because we are people formed in a way of love, formed by love, formed to love, and we make our world a more whole place when we do so. Friends, whether you turn to the right or to the left, whether you go straight ahead or need for a time to turn back, may you hear a voice saying, this is the way. Keep going. Amen. And amen. What were you hoping that folks would get out of the message this week, Barry? One, I was hoping they would see kind of the entirety of our series in this opening chapter of Ruth, uh, where there was much about where individuals came from, origin stories, um, and much about human hurt and human need, uh, the capacity to inquire about those in a variety of ways, but ultimately about um, a sense of leading and following when it comes to where do we go from here. And I wanted people to see that, that where do we go from here is really a, a, a question we ask and get asked all the time. Uh, every time we face a change in life, it's a where do we go from here. There are pivot moments. 
Something I really appreciated is that sometimes when we ask the question, where do we go from here, people expect the destination to be the answer. And as you mentioned, um, and I would add, that's rarely the case. So say more a little bit about how, how do you find where to go from here if, if you do not know the destination? Do you know where you're going to? <laughs> so the, no. The answer is no. I don't know where I'm going to. And, and often when we, when we talk about uh, where do we go from here, often that's an exasperation kind of a, a thing. We're, we're in a stuck place. So oh, where do we go from here? As though the challenge comes in a, in a particular question or we come to a fork in the road where a decision has got to be made um, and the where do we go from here is a, du- a directional mm-hmm. piece it's not where do we end up from here because that that's rarely the sense that we have mm-hmm. um, we, we I think when we're younger we might have a sense that oh this is a pivot point and and I'll know the de- the destination. I'm going to go to college, and then I'm going to do this. Yeah, we have uh, we have kind of set points of direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think as we get older, we one we tend to be less convinced that that's how it works out, um, and two more comfortable that that's not how it works out. That mm-hmm. that we're taking a next a next step, not a final step. Hmm. Yeah, we kind of use where do we go from here um, as a euphemism for the question, uh, you know, what what are we going to do next, right? They're kind of in that same broad, but that, that stuckness that leads yeah. us to an openness to what might be next. Um, you also, you used many illustrations. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you you, you know, said that with a bit of a wince. Well... I, I was kind of piling them on as I was developing, and you I like love I like, an illustration. <laughs> well, and they were all pieces that that I've collected that are kind of important to me personally, mm. and and I'm aware that where I'm going to is to a place where I'm not going to be preaching here any longer, and I want to get all my good stuff out. Yeah, right? <laughs> get it all out now. Unpack those bags, buddy. Um, no, I, I. And we talk about this, you know, that you, you and I kind of have different approaches to preaching, and that's part of what I think is appreciated at Chapel Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a, a dynamic balance there. Um, the story of Ruth stands very well on its own, and it feels very archaic, and most of it outside of our experience. This is a, this is an ancient tale from the ancient Near East, where we don't really understand much of how family dynamics worked. Didn't understand much of the the, the cultural differences, um, the animosity between uh, those from Judah and those from Moab, all the kinds of the the moves that they needed to make based on. Um, uh, things that that are certainly affecting the world today, the the need to become refugees based on mm-hmm. on climate Even, change, yeah. um, you know, lots of similarities there. But things that for us in Portage, Michigan, probably are not immediately. Uh, yeah, we have less so, laws dictating how family is supposed to work. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. And 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 even more confusing. We talked about this in the ten o'clock hour. Um, you know, most of what we consider to be laws then were really social laws. Yep. 
um, and that they did not have the the power of somebody coming and checking in on you about whether you're breaking the law or not, but there's the cultural law, and that's even worse because people look askance at you, look down at you, and even and even can can be brutal to you if you if they perceive that you're breaking a social law. Mm-hmm. Um, so so anyway, all that is to say that I wanted to put some illustrations in that contemporized the the situation um, while while Children of Eden. Uh, tells the story of the ancient flood. It's a familiar enough story. I mean, we grew up with the flood story, and he takes it to this place of here's what it feels like to us to um, to be in a place where we can't just get off when we want to. Things are going on that, that do not allow us to just get off the ark and get on with our lives. Something's holding us up. And how do we how do we manage? How do we go from how do we go from here when there are things that are inhibiting that? So I just wanted to contemporize contemporize the thought on it, and so songs as well. <laughs> I didn't sing them though. Were you proud of me? You know, I enjoy when you sing. It's fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I think uh, perhaps to me the most helpful thing you did was reframe the question um, as opposed to where are we going from here to why? And I find so often when I feel stuck, it's because of the question I'm asking. Um, I I need to kind of zoom out a little bit. I find a lot of, you know, just things as small as when we're gathering for Bible study and we're asking questions of the text. So often the questions we're asking are, uh, you know, are very kind of set, like the what and the why and the how, uh, sorry, the what, the where and the how and not the why, right? Or what does this tell us about who God is? So I appreciated that because I think the why, uh, the purpose, right, can give us so much direction um, or at least confidence if we know our why uh, to be able to handle whatever comes next. All right. Uh, You also got to talk a little bit about how this is... uh, right now evident in kind of your professional life, your personal and professional life. Yes. Yeah. Say a little bit more about that or. I am not retiring. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know everybody, everybody thinks I'm well past retirement age, but. uh, Twice a week someone's like, hey, so Barry's retiring and we're like, he's not retiring y'all. Don't know how more clearly I can communicate it, but I certainly did it on Sunday. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's uh, one of those places right now where you know Jess and I and the church leadership have been working toward this in an intentional transition that got you know admittedly delayed uh, in COVID, um, but the idea that uh, a twenty three year pastorate needs some some good transition and uh, and this is it and and my months now are uh, are about um, giving gratitude and, and looking at what has been but also looking forward to what will be in our system I've got some waiting to do because the pastors are appointed by the bishop so uh, bishop and I have been in conversation I don't know what that appointment is going to look like yet and so there's um, oh. graceful anxiety about where that might be but I, mm-hmm. I uh, I trust that 
there will be a place for me and be to be in ministry, but it will involve significant pivots from this place that I've come to know and largely love so well. And, you know, a place where we've been family and doing what families do and arm wrestling along the way and learning along the way and loving along the way. So I, I think folks, what's interesting about this and so as a way to talk about that, I, I think folks understand or one reason they assume you're retiring is because it makes it it makes it easier for us. Sure. <laughs> or we think we know the why behind retirement, right? Your work is done. But in your case, and in the case of many uh, clergy, Methodist clergy or, or elsewise, we have this interesting kind of sense of call as a part of that. And, and there's a little bit more to it than that. So I think if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about um, your why, why, why sure. this is the time to transition or why you foresaw this, you know, really like five years ago. Yeah. Why is, um, why is the stuff that, that really shakes me in the middle of the night? It's not the what, it's not the details of stuff that I have to do. It's the larger picture why and it was increasingly clear to me that the why of my staying was uh, more difficult to articulate to myself um, than the why of leaving. That um, Chapel Hill had come to a, a, a good place. It's, it has not always been an easy place to serve. Um, it has not been consistently... Um, clear about its vision and identity and I think uh, the church came to a different place around that and bringing you Jess uh, on board with me and that partnership is, has only helped to clarify um, to the chagrin of some uh, it's helped to clarify <laughs> uh, the why of our ministry now and the why of that minute of our ministry now does not require my uh, continuing to tend gardens I've been I've been tending too long frankly um, and I am not I'm clear that I'm not done the why of moving forward is that I am still gifted I'm still called I've got a lot of experience in the United Methodist Church in a variety of roles from from deep urban work uh, to administrative work to nonprofit work to nonprofit development work. And um, I think that those can be used at a time when the church drawn large is in such transition. And I want to be helpful to that. Uh, so I feel like that's the why for the, for the leaving at this time. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes folks have a hard time um, wrapping their head around like, uh, you know, you've um, you've been here a long time. You're a known quantity. Things are going well. You know, things are going well at this church. So, so I think some people are like, well, why would you want to leave? Um, and it's, I think sometimes folks might not consider the sense of call that we have to the place that we serve. We prioritize right above um, often kind of like what's easy for us. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like churches, uh, churches grow and have identity and have gifts and skills as well as do individuals. And there comes a time in healthy churches where, you know, a pastor that's been here going on 24 years might say like, hey, I have given a lot of my life and my gifts and my call to attend this place. And and I have given what I can. 
and I feel called elsewhere. And I think the church feels called elsewhere. And there's not, uh, there doesn't have to, like, we will, we will be sad and we will grieve and we will be grateful together and we will kind of figure out how to do this next hard stuff. Um, but for me, this is some of the most beautiful uh, ways to do church where we kind of model what it looks like to leave when yeah. it's time to leave. Where, you know, we don't have to, it's not like Barry did something wrong and he's being pushed out. And that happens and that needs to happen in churches. Sure, sure. Right, but this is, this is I don't kind th- of... I don't think I have. <laughs> no, no. You'll let this me is, know. <laughs> you know, this is not, this is not that. And so sometimes... You know, sometimes when people leave, we kind of have this weird, like, well, we must, that, that it must be bad. There must be something bad about it. Right. You know, and I remember, just to give, like, kind of simplistic examples, when, you know, uh, when friendships maybe wouldn't work out when I was younger or, um, you know, my first relationships wouldn't work out because values were different or growing apart or very normal, natural reasons, it's very tempting then to make, like, to kind of demonize that other person or to make it uh, something it's not because we don't know how to deal with the grief. Um, and, and so modeling this for the church, I think, will help us all figure out what it looks like to leave and to grieve. Because that's the thing we've been talking about. We don't know mm-hmm. how to do well through this whole series. Right. Um, this series, in a lot of ways, I've been meaning to ask, you know, has to do with how to love well. And part of loving well is figuring out what it means when transitions need to happen and, and figuring out what that could look like. And so I'm, um, I'm really happy that you, you know, you were willing to share your kind of why right now on the podcast, but also to remind people, hey, I'm not retiring because um, that's the easiest narrative for folks. Because our we sent out a letter, you know, from yeah. SBRC that said, you know, Barry is transitioning and leaving Chapel Hill. It did not say retiring yet. Folks interpreted that in their brain as, oh, he must be retiring because I think that gives yeah. us some sort of like ease. Sure. You know, for whatever reason, like, oh, it's not us as if they're, you know, as if that's the issue when it's, it's not us. It's a, it's a call. Um, it's, it's God calling us to continue growing and the growing um, isn't going to be done together in this way any longer. So part of the why is that I was not born into the United Methodist Church. I was adopted by that little church in Ludington, Michigan. And I owe so much of who I am and my development, my understanding, my apprehension of God uh, to that church and to the communities that, that came after. The denomination has been a mess. And the people within it sometimes have been a mess, including me. And me. And still... And still, it is community that has um, taught me and embraced me and made use of my gifts. And the why is that it still will, and it still can, and as long as I can, I will. As we talk about this... And as you're willing, um, you know, to really vulnerably share yourself in this way, it's an emotional, it's an emotional process, right? And you've been emotional and talking about it. And I think that's because why questions, um, why questions lead 
lead to that inner space, that kind of inner inner soft space where we're a little more vulnerable, where we'd love to stay with the where. Because the where we can point to, it is outside of us. It is somewhere in the future that feels you know more detached. So we prefer the where, um, but the why, the why that would give us the confidence moving forward, it's harder to talk about because it's so tied into our identity and, and who we understand ourselves to be um, together or apart. And that that's why the why question is so powerful. Yeah. yeah, the why is inherently expansive in such a way that you don't encapsulate it in a couple of words. Yeah. Um, in any, it's, sometimes it's hard to put it in any words. In any words, right? So the feels take over, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So thank, thanks for letting me do that. <laughs> It was a. It was. A, Thanks a lot. It was a gift to us uh, for you to articulate some of that and to help us, um, or to model for us what it looks like to kind of take some time and think about that why, and that's a lot of the work uh, I want to do here at Chapel Hill is to is to get us to think about our why. Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why were we formed? How can we capture that and um, move forward? Because I'm confident God has a lot God wants to do here and some incredible people. And we have been um, guided, uh, cajoled, shepherded Mm -hmm. (laughs) by some incredible leadership, uh, clergy and lay. And and my deep prayer is um, God will continue to provide that for us as we as we continue whatever work she has for us here in little old Portage, Michigan. Metropolitan Kalamazoo. <laughs> so, dear ones, um, I hope you can take some time to think about your where do we go from here, but also um, your why. Why do we go from here? Why do we go together? Why do sometimes we need to go apart? And and just generally, uh, what's what's your why as we move forward into this season? We will see you next week when we start a new series. Um, we're going to get real geeky. It's going to be a good time. Wesley. John Wesley. <laughs> Are you making this song up? This isn't even we'll a real We'll have song. a Wesley bobblehead. <laughs> we are going to look at uh, John Wesley's sermon, The Use of Money, um, and talk a little bit about stewardship. And we'll talk about financial stewardship, but also stewardship just in, in terms of our way of being and, and a way of dealing with all God has entrusted us with regarding our gifts and our skills. Um, and it'll be it'll be a really interesting uh, series, and we'll we we don't often get to very explicitly kind of talk about our Wesleyan heritage in this sort of way. Um, we do implicitly all the time, but this will be this will be fun and a little nerdy, and I'm excited. I'll do my best to keep it nerdy for, you. <laughs> for at least the opening week. All right, we'll see y'all next time. <laughs>